you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 13, or 12 and 13 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that you would help us this morning as we open up your word together and see more of your son in this text. We ask that you would reveal him to us. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to worship you and what we learn from this text. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Albert Einstein, who was made famous for his quantum theory of light and his research of atoms, was once quoted as saying that adversity introduces a man to himself. Adversity introduces a man to himself. In other words, if you want to know who you are, don't look at who you are when people are watching and when things are going well. But instead, when things are going poorly, when you are in secret, when you are in private, that is when you can tell who you truly are. That is when true character is seen. So who are you when the family is tucked in for bed at night? Who are you when things get tough? Who do you trust when it seems like life is hopeless? What do you do, say, and watch when no one is watching you? That's true character. And adversity has a way of revealing or bringing to the surface what is deep down. When we face trials and tribulations in life, when we face things that would cause us to be tempted to sin, that's when we see who we truly are. That's when we see our true character. And in this passage of Scripture, we see a glimpse into the 40-day temptation of our Lord. While we often struggle with even a moment's temptation of sin, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and yet without sin. And so this morning, I want to consider together just one point from these two verses. Our sinless Savior. Our sinless Savior. If you'll go back with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, again, I'll quote this and refer to this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. But in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So there we have the content of the book of Mark, of the Gospel of Mark. It's all going to be about Jesus. It's not about Mark. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark is writing to us about this man, Jesus Christ, about the Lord and Savior who is Jesus, the Messiah who came to be Emmanuel, God with us. He is writing to us about Him. And the thesis statement, the, the whole point of what Mark is writing to us about Jesus is to prove to us that He's the Son of God. To prove to us that Jesus is who He says He is. And so in the first several sermons as we've looked at this uh, gospel, as we've looked at the book of Mark, we've seen that Jesus was baptized, that John is crying out of the wilderness. He's pointing everyone to Jesus. And here, immediately after the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God compels Jesus or impels Him to go out into the wilderness to prove once again and at another angle that He is God. 
but He is the very Son of God. And the way that He does that, before He gets into the sermon, before Jesus ever says a word in the Gospel of Mark, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, Jesus has one more show-and-tell event for us. He has one more thing to show us that He is the Son of God before He ever says anything. And it's here in verses 12 and 13. Last week we considered together the baptism of Jesus. We said that Jesus was not baptized so that He could be redeemed from any sin within Himself, but so that He might identify Himself with the church, showing Himself to be the head of the body, to be the ruler, to be the husband of the bride, the church. And 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, it said that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we were saved for those of us who sit this morning here as, as those who have been redeemed and who have been bought, bought from our sinful life We have been bought with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been purchased, we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb was not tarnished by anything that would require Him to be saved from it. And so He was baptized not to be saved, but to identify with the body. To show Himself to be the Savior of the body. And here, immediately after that baptism, in verses 12 and 13 we get a glimpse into that sinlessness, into that spotlessness of the Lamb of God. Jesus is drawn into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But notice with me here, who drew Him there? Look with me at Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Immediately. Now this word immediately is something that we're going to see over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it's because Mark is writing with a sense of urgency. Mark is writing with a sense of urgency about the reality that life is short. It's not that Mark doesn't have anything else to write about, and so he wrote less than the other Gospel writers, Matthew, uh, Luke, and John. It's not that he ran out of content. It's not that he didn't care to tell us the whole story. But Mark uses this word immediately over and over again to express a sense of urgency that Mark wants to get to the gospel. He wants to get to the meat and the potatoes of what the, what the gospel is about, namely about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that by saying immediately, immediately, I'm, I'm hurrying along as I go. And here in verse 12, he says immediately, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And so it was the Holy Spirit of God who sent Jesus out to be tempted. Yet, in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we see, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So there are three problems that we need to deal with immediately in this text. First, Jesus is God. And James says that God cannot be tempted by evil. Second, 
The Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit is the one, according to verse 12, according to our Bible, the Holy Spirit is the one who impelled him or told him to go out into the wilderness. And yet, James again says that God tempts no one. And third, James says that we are not tempted by God, but by our own desires and our own enticements and our own lust. And so I think a simple and reasonable explanation for all three of these that is in line with the rest of the Scripture is that this word tempted means to be tested, to be tried, to make proof of a claim. And so we are tempted, yes, because of our own lusts and evil desires. Since the fall of man, our will, mind, heart, speech, and actions are all corrupted according to texts such as Romans chapter 3. We are under total depravity. We are all sinful. We are all inherently evil. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in Adam all die. We died out to any righteousness of our own. But Jesus is here tempted not by His own desires. Because all of His desires are holy. For He Himself is perfectly holy. But by the devil's attempts to disprove Jesus' identity. And God's accomplishment of proving His identity. What we see in verse 12, immediately the Spirit, again, the Holy Spirit of God impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now, the Spirit of God, according to James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, again, tempts no one. In other words, it's not the Spirit that tempts us to sin. We can't blame God for our sin. We have the responsibility of dealing with our own sin. We can't shake our fist at God and say, well, you made me this way. That's something we hear today that, oh, I was just born this way. Yes, you were born a sinner in need of a Savior. And so we can't blame God for our sin because God tempts no one. We are tempted and enticed by our own lust. But Jesus here is sent out into this temptation, into this wilderness Because the Holy Spirit knows that Jesus will not fall victim to the devil's temptations. The Holy Spirit knows that the point of this, the purpose of this, is to prove further that Jesus is who He says He is. And that in doing this, in putting Jesus in the line of temptation, in the line of fire, if you will, that Jesus will prove, I am who I say I am. Imagine with me for a moment that someone came in and said that they were a great baseball player. That they could throw a strike and you would never even see the ball pass you. What would be the first thing that you'd want to do? You'd want to get them out on the diamond and see how well they throw the ball. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 12. Jesus is saying that He is the Son of God. John the Baptist is saying that He is the Son of God. Mark, as he writes his Gospel, is saying that Jesus is the Son of God. We've just seen in the baptism of Jesus this Trinitarian example, this Trinitarian uh, scene rather, that the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son are all saying that Jesus is the Son of God. So all of this talk about Jesus being the Son of God, all of this talk about Jesus being the Messiah, about Him fulfilling all the Old Testament Scriptures and prophecies is finally shown here by putting Jesus to the test. 
In other words, it's as though Mark and as though the Holy Spirit of God through Mark were saying, now we've told you. We've told you that Jesus is who He says He is. We've shown you once by having the Trinity show up on scene at the baptism of Jesus, something that didn't happen for every baptism. Now let me show you again. We're going to put Jesus in the line of fire. And yet without sin. And in Jesus' perfect obedience, we see who He is. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Mark just tells us that Jesus went out into the wilderness. But Matthew tells us about what happened while he was in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up again by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, being the devil, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. There are just three brief things I want to say this morning. First, note that Jesus uses the Scriptures as His weapon against Satan's attacks. And each of His responses to the devil's temptations, temptations, by the way, which are clearly said as coming from Satan and not from Jesus, not from Jesus' own sinfulness as though there were any, but instead it says, In chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then in verse 3, In the tempter, namely the devil, came and said to him. And so, again in verse 5, Then the devil took him. It is the devil who is tempting him. It is not Jesus who is desiring after these things. But it is the devil who is tempting him. And in each of his responses, in each of Jesus' responses to the devil... He says the same thing. Look with me in verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written. Go down to verse 7. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written. And then in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written. The Scriptures have said, or it is written. In other words, Jesus uses the Word as the sword. 
as the offensive weapon of the believer. It's interesting to me that if you go to Ephesians and look at the armor of God, the only offensive weapon that we're given is the Word of God. Our only weapon against the devil's attempts at deceiving us is the Word of God. The first temptation the devil ever placed before our first parents, Adam and Eve, was to twist God's Word. And here he does it again. He says in verse 6, And said to him, The devil said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so in other words, what the devil is doing is what the devil has always done. He's twisting truth. He's lying. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees who were trying to twist Scripture and challenge Him at every turn along His way, says in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil lies. This is all he does. He's not the bad version of everything that God is. He is not an equal with God. It is not as though there's this cosmic war going on this spiritual battle going on and God is just fighting against the devil and God just barely has the upper hand. That God's just barely towing the line. That God is kind of winning. But no, we sing songs like victory in Jesus. Because Jesus is the victor. He's not the would-be victor or the could-be victor. He's not the one who just needs us to tilt the scales in His favor. He's not the one who's just waiting for the devil to slip up somewhere along the way. Who's just waiting for the devil to miss a punch so that way Jesus can get the final blow in. No, Jesus has already done that upon the cross at Calvary. And because of that, Jesus is the sovereign King. He shows Himself to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The King and God of this devil. And so the devil is not warring against God, almost winning. The devil has lost the war. And so all that the devil can do is not create from him, uh, for himself. He doesn't create anything. All he does is lie. And he tempts us with those lies. All the devil can do is say, look at all I have. I'll give it all to you. If only you would bow down and worship me. If only you would do what I say, I'll give you everything. If only you would kill that child in your womb, you would finally have true freedom. You wouldn't have to worry about all the duties of parenthood. Just do away with the child. If only you would gamble some of your money away, I'll return it to you tenfold. Put the money in and pull the lever and see how... See how well I'll pay you off. If only you would just take some of this drink. You'll feel better. You can drown all your worries. But what happens come morning time? You don't feel so well then. In the morning, that drink that you drank the night before is punching you right in the gut. 
and the money that you put in the lottery machine isn't in your bank account. All the devil does is lie. He promises us great things, but drastically underdelivers. Look with me at what he says here in verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So he's tempting him, Show yourself to be the Son of God. Go ahead, prove it. And so Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Imagine this. Here's the devil. The devil, by the way, remember who got kicked out of heaven for his treason against God, who was created by God as an angel and then lost his right to heaven, lost his right to be near God, takes Jesus and says, look at all of it. I'll give it to you. Just fall down and worship me. I'll give you all of this. I can just imagine being a spectator there. Knowing the Scriptures, knowing... John chapter 1, verse 1, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and nothing that was created was created apart from the Word. And in Genesis chapter 1, where it says that God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, so Jesus, being God, created everything. Imagine that here's Satan, and here's Jesus standing on the mountaintop. And the devil says, here it is. I'll give it to you. Jesus created it. It doesn't belong to the devil. None of it belongs to the devil. All the devil could do was lie. All the devil could do was twist reality. And this is exactly what he does. He lives to still kill and destroy. He who was cast out of heaven is absolutely enraged by the thought that we who were once enemies against God in the flesh would ever be invited to sit at the table of God as sons and daughters. The one who lost his entrance into heaven. The one who was kicked out and chained in the lake of fire for all eternity. Hates those of us who would ever be invited to be with him. Those of us who would ever be invited to sit at the table of God. The place where the devil longed to be, namely on the throne of all creation, is where Jesus sits. And Jesus invites us to come before his throne while he has eternally cast Satan and his demons away from his throne. And because of that, the devil wants nothing more than to see you chained right alongside him in hell's furnace. The devil hates you. He would have us dead. And if the devil had it his way, he would have God dead. 
But he, being the devil, is the one whose life will be eternally consumed by the wrath of a sovereign and righteously angry God. And so if we are ever to stand against the schemes of the devil against us, that is, to quench the fiery darts of Satan, then we must store up God's word in our heart. We need to be ready to say it is written. We need to be studying now. We need to be storing up as a storehouse, as in a storehouse, the word of God so that we can be prepared when the devil comes. Not if the devil comes, but when he comes and tempts you. Be prepared. Second, Jesus in his perfect obedience that he displays for us proves himself further to be the Son of God, the right and proper sacrifice to atone for our sins. Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. There are not multiple mediators, and we do not need, as the Catholic faith would say, a mediator between us and Jesus. Jesus is the mediator between us and God. He is the God-man, the one mediator between God and man. And Jesus is that mediator because He is the perfect and sinless sacrifice on our behalf. If Jesus had slipped up here, if Jesus had desired after what the devil was offering, if Jesus had thought even for a split second, maybe I should worship the devil. He's offering me all of these great things. Maybe I should. If that had happened even for a split second, Jesus would have sinned. And Jesus would have fallen out of His eligibility to atone for our sins. But this morning, I'm thankful that Jesus didn't slip up. I'm thankful that Jesus is at no risk of sinning. That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. That Jesus came to do and be what you and I could never do and be for ourselves. And here He shows it. He gives us a glimpse into that purity. And while on this side of glory, while yet not to heaven, we are striving toward perfection. We are striving toward that purity. But one day, Jesus will bring us into glory and give us that full purity. That true purity that He Himself has. And so, as we see this purity, this ability to stand against sin, first of all, we need to pray that we would be able to stand against sin in the same way that Jesus did. That we would be like Jesus. And secondly, we can look forward to that day when He wipes away every tear from our eyes and there is no more sin, no more death, no more darkness, and all is pure and bright. I wonder this morning, are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day when you place your eyes upon your Savior? When He takes you up in His arms and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Are you looking forward to that day? That day is coming. Third, I've often heard and read misunderstandings on this temptation of Jesus. Jesus was not tempted by some sin within Himself. 
Jesus had no sin and therefore He was able to be the sacrifice to save us from our sin. He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. 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 But we have a common misconception that temptations are not themselves sinful. According to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5-7, through Jesus tells us that the standard required of us for entrance into heaven is absolute perfection. And so how can anyone gain entrance into heaven? Only by and through placing our faith and trust in Jesus. By admitting that I'm not perfect, I have no ability of being perfect, and therefore I must trust in the one who is perfect. The one who has shown himself and proven himself time and time again to be perfect. Jesus says that even lust within our heart is like committing adultery. And that hatred toward our brother is like murder. And that desiring after other people's belongings is covetousness. Desires after anything that goes against God and His perfect law is sin. A desire to break God's law and an actual breaking of God's law are different, but they are both sinful. And again, James says that temptation breeds sin. The wording that he uses there helps us to understand what he means to communicate. For example, if I were to ask you what dogs breed, your logical answer would not be that dogs breed or give birth to cats. In the same way, humans don't breed or give birth to reptiles, but to humans. And so temptation breeds sin because desiring after sinful things is itself sinful. If I were to tell you that I've looked at everything that you own, if I came to you privately and said, hey, I've I've really been staking out your house. I see your house. It's a beautiful home. I see the car parked in 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 the driveway. It's a really beautiful car. I saw your bank account. I want it all. I just have this deep desire. I just want to take it from you. I want it. I want it to be mine. You wouldn't look at me and say, okay, here you go. You'd say, you have a problem. You need to get that figured out. That's coveting. And it's a desire. But now if I go and take it from you, I've acted on that. Both are sinful. James says that temptation breeds sin and Jesus has no sin and no desire to sin. So how was He tempted? Very simple. Jesus is God. He has no desire to sin. He is truly God and truly man. But He was tempted without sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14-16, through 16, we're told, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The devil tempted Jesus, and yet Jesus stood firm. Jesus was tempted, yet without sin. Jesus stood firm. Go back with me to Mark chapter 1. Verse 13, And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels 
were ministering to him. What does it matter that Jesus was tempted? Why do we care about his temptation that we see here? Why was it included in the Gospels? Because you and I had a debt that we could not pay. If you and I ever tried to pay our own debt, we never could. And if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not walked with the Lord in newness of life, then you still owe a debt that you cannot pay. John Flavel, one of my favorite Puritan writers, said, Sin had so shut up mercy from us that had not Christ made an atonement by His death, we should never have obtained it to all eternity. In other words, Flavel speaks of a proportionate and effectual atonement. Jesus' blood was not spent on Calvary's hillside in hopes that people might accept Him. He died not to test the waters and see who might be willing to have His blood applied to them. He died in effectual death. He died to actually save people from their sins. To save His sheep. And He was able to do so because the blood that he poured out was perfect and spotless. The devil was defeated. Satan's temptations did not trap him. Death did not contain him. The cross did not destroy him. But Jesus has reigned victorious over all of it. And because of that, you and I can sit here this morning with full assurance that if we have placed our trust and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an anchor for the soul that will not move. And we can be guaranteed eternal life through the perfect life of the risen Son who shows Himself in our text this morning to be the perfect Son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. Would you help me in my own life not to be cold or indifferent toward what Jesus came to do, but that there would be a renewed fire within me, starting at this very moment, to see and savor the glory of your Son. Would you help me? And would you help us? In Christ's name, amen.